Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. On today's Studcast, the Stud will step into the ring with NWA World Champion Terry Funk for a long-awaited championship match. Terry Funk has tried everything to derail the Stud's shot at the NWA World Championship. Now get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the stud cast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, this is going to be a big show today. I can feel it. Oh, yeah, man. We've been waiting on this one. And uh, I got a little flack last week after uh after I decided that we weren't going to have time to to be able to put this match, this final match with Terry Funk in uh, in last week's episode, and I I had some people that were you know like wow man what did you do that to us for for <laughs> again for you know but uh you know just uh I, they'll see today because I think this is going to take at least thirty minutes here to do this one match. It's a pretty remarkable event actually. So that's where we are today. We're going to get in. I guarantee everybody listening out there, we're going to get the whole thing in today. You're going to get to hear all of what happened in that world championship match with Terry Funk in October of 1976. Well, you've been building it up. You've done an amazing job painting the picture and we're sitting on the edge of our seat. And Ron, I'm telling you, we're not going to sit there much longer. So, and I'm not even going to ask, where are we riding today? Because <laughs> I have no idea what the answer might be, but, well, what's it going to be? Well, I tell you, we're, we're going to go somewhat back to our, our regular format that we've gone, we've been uh, doing for a long, long time now. Uh, we've got a today's training episode in this one today. We've also got a learning tree in this one today. Today's training is going to focus on uh, putting back on the owner hat, and, uh, and I'm going to become an owner again. And and we're going to talk about the mistake I made in the world title Coliseum show. Crazy, uh, crazy about that, uh, you know, that that happened. And I think people are going to find that interesting, uh, what I missed, the opportunity I missed. And then, uh, and then I have to apologize for the person that sent me today's learning tree question. You know, I asked not recently, you know, for new questions for people I'd run out of questions and uh, got this such tremendous response that when I wrote down this question, I didn't write down the person's name. 
But it's a perfect question for this particular studcast because he asked, uh, since the Jola Duke and Mongolian stopper angle turned out uh, badly with an injury, obviously, uh, did you ever work another angle that maybe went too far like that angle did? So uh, if the listener that sent me this question, uh, if, he, if he would get in touch with me, I'll be glad to acknowledge him. And, uh, you know, he can uh, get in touch with me on any of my Facebook sites, leave me a message there or whatever. And, and I'll recognize him next week for this question today. But did we're going to do both did, of those questions. Did he send it on the telegraph machine? What? what? <laughs> I think it's a little more modern than nowadays, <laughs> nowadays than the telegraph, you know. But uh, right. it's still, uh, he sent it to me in the proper form. I just uh, passed over what I should have. No. So then obvious today, we're going to finish with that tremendous day of October 10th, 1976, that <laughs> world championship match with Terry Funk and I. And uh, we didn't have time for it last week, but I'm going to leave nothing out this time. I'll tell you that. And uh, those that haven't heard anything about this match before, uh, I think are going to be really shocked and surprised by what happened. Well, that is that is great to hear, Ron. But I have a question or two, maybe. The way you laid this out just now for today, it sounds like the match is going to be coming last in the show. And if I'm speaking for myself and for listeners, you left us hanging last week at the end of the show. And I kind of thought it was going to be at the beginning of the show. And if this happens, I'm going to start calling your brother, Rob, the Tennessee stud again. So I, I don't know what's going on here, but I think you, you need to revisit that. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Dave, you know, and you made a good point there. You know, I kind of was thinking about leaving it to last because I'm, I'm not an old school guy, you know, and the main event ought to come last and I have a hard time getting away from that. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on and tell the, tell everything about this match first, just to make you happy and the listeners happy. So you don't have to worry that about getting hung up again. All right, you can still be the Tennessee stud. All right, so so you've kept us in suspense for weeks now. I mean, really, you've done an amazing job building this thing up. It's time to hear what happened on October 10th, 1976, the NWA world title match between you and Terry Funk. All right, well, I mean, we've kind of set the stage here. Uh, I, I want to start this, Dave, uh, with something I talked about in last week's studcast when I we talked about the television that was advertising this big event, uh, several other things. And we talked about the Terry Funk interview that ran in that TV that was the day before this match now. So we're, we're backing up here. Uh, so the day before this world championship match is a Terry Funk interview. And in that interview, he demanded that all the fans in the building stand and cheer for him when he was coming to the ring. And uh, and and I, I'm 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 sorry to say, well, no, no, I'm not sorry to say. I'm happy to say it didn't happen exactly like that for him. <laughs> so, but he, when the bell rang, he did go to the ring first. And as soon as fans could see him, because there's a big black curtain that goes all across the back of the Coliseum, and. Uh, the baby faces come out of one side and the heels come out of the other. Mm -hmm. And so Terry goes to the ring first. And when he comes out of that black curtain and everybody in the Coliseum can see him, they all slowly begin to rise to their feet. It's pretty <laughs> amazing by the thousands. I mean, it was like, I, I watched it, you know, so, and it, I, it was like, dang, that's just what he demanded. But the, there was one difference in what he asked for. 
Uh, so they weren't cheering for him. They were <laughs> booing the hell out of Terry Funk. <laughs> I mean, everybody in the building was standing up. Uh, you know, I'd seen and been involved in many NWA world title matches, but I had never heard a world champion get a reception like that. I mean, wow. The animosity of the crowd was just unbelievable. I mean, it, it was especially if you considered the fact that he had never wrestled in Knoxville before. This is his first time ever in Knoxville, and he is going to the ring, and there's hardly a person in the building that's sitting down, and every one of them is booing him. So so Terry, being the great worker that he was, and and he had such great instincts about uh, how to get over and how to get heat. Instead of making a quick walk to the ring, he slowed down. As soon as he started getting those big boos, you could see his gait slow down. And he started looking from <laughs> one side of the building to the other side of the building. And uh, he took his time getting to the ring. I mean, he let that anger build. It just mm-hmm. got more and more, louder and louder. By the time he got to the ring, the entire building, all of them were on their feet. Wasn't any doubt about it. So I watched his entrance. Like I said, I'm in the back of the building. I'm behind the curtain, too. And I just pulled the curtain back, and I could see him going to the ring. And I heard, obviously, I couldn't help but hear what was going on. So I watched his entrance uh, out of sight. People couldn't see that I was watching. And once he finally stepped in the ring, he raised his hands above his head, the old consummate heel move, as if he'd already won the match. And uh, by simply doing that, I mean, he forced that crowd's reaction to go up another level. It was like, wow, I thought they were already booing. They just went absolutely nuts in. So I just waited a little longer, you know, so that he could milk it for a little more, you know, and that's basically what he was doing at this point. He just kept milking that crowd to get everything he could out of him before I showed my face. So when I finally appeared and I, I, I got the opposite welcome he got, the crowd was still standing. They hadn't sit down from booing him and standing. They were standing and, you know, doing for him what he had asked, but they weren't cheering him, but they were cheering for me. And boy, I got those instant goosebumps. I mean, <laughs> and on the way to the ring, I mean, I'd never had that happen before. That building was just electric, even before the introductions of the match. Wow. Did you guys have music back then? No music. This is another day in time, man. It right. wasn't like right. nowadays. I mean, you just sort of, the bell rang, you went to no the fireworks. Ring. There's no fireworks. There's no theatrics. There's no special thing happening. But yeah. it wasn't necessary. They yeah. had, how could you get everybody on their feet? And there was nothing except just his entrance and my entrance. Yeah. So. Wow. The entire building, they never sat down or quieted during the time that I got there and they introduced us. They just kept roaring. And when we came to the center of the ring after introduction to be checked by the referee and before the bell was rung, everybody in the building, I looked around, I didn't see anybody sitting down. I could hardly hear the bell ring for the crowd's roar. It was <laughs> that big already, you know, and right. that's. So, you know, now over the roar of this huge crowd, he stepped up into my face. Uh, and we're in the middle of the ring. We've just been checked. And he, he shoves his chest up into my chest. And he says to me, back up. And <laughs> I was so fired up by the crowd, man. I didn't want to back up. I mean, I, I was ready to do something, you know. And so he had to yell. 
you know, like, and he, he probably thought I couldn't hear him because they were just screaming so loud. You could say anything you wanted to. Nobody's going to hear what you say. Yeah. So he yells at me again and he goes back up and, uh, you know, and I didn't know what, where, where we were going with this, right? It's the beginning of the match, but I knew I didn't want to back up. I knew that as like, oh, wait a minute. I think the way I want to start the match, but I also knew he's the champ by God. And, uh, and he's, it's his match to lead. Being the champ, uh, you're going to lead the match. So I finally took a step back. And uh, kind of what I expected, the crowd noise dropped off a little bit. And he stepped forward right away, chest to chest, face to face again. He said, back up. So I hesitated again. And uh, he had to say it twice again, you know. Uh, and, and when I backed up that time, the crowd noise went down another decibel. Mm. So slowly, he backed me across the ring into my corner. And when we got into my corner where I couldn't go any further back, he's face to face with me. His chest is shoved up against my chest. He says to me, uh, step forward. So right then, I finally got it. <laughs> I mean, what this was all about. And, uh, and I stretched my body out as tall as I could be, man. I was towering over him. He's about 6'3", but I had, I had to be seven foot. You know, I stretched myself as good as I could. I changed my expression on my face to a defiant one, and I, and I just looked down on him, man. And uh, when I took that first step forward, forcing him to back up, boy, here came that crowd again. And it was like, wow, he's going to stand his ground. And I backed him all the way across the ring, a step at a time. Uh, the crowd noise grew with every one of those steps that he took backwards. It, by the time he reached his corner, it was as high as it had been all night. And when he got to the corner, he jumped out into the ring on the floor. And the roof came off the building. <laughs> like, wow, look at this, man. He's scared. So, uh, oh, what a beginning it was. I mean, we'd spent the first three or four minutes of this match. We didn't lay a finger on each other. We'd already had our first pop of the night. And, uh, you know, when match begins that way, it's like, like pure magic. I mean, you know that you have the crowd and you know that that match is going to be off the charts good. I mean, wow, you just don't know how good it's going to be, but you know this is going to be a special deal. Man, are you kidding? This uh, uh, Really, I don't think I've ever seen a match begin this way or a crowd that reacts to you two guys. So what happens from there? And again, I think you kind of answered one of my questions I was thinking about. What was you were 6'9", 275, and Terry Funk was 6'3". So you definitely towered over him. And I'm sure he was probably in the best shape of his life at the time. Oh, yeah. Okay. Terry was in tremendous shape. You know, he's young. He's young at that point. And uh, he's, he's, he's in darn good shape. And he's going around the country and wrestling, the greatest wrestlers in the world. He's doing these Broadways three, four nights a week, these hour time limit matches. Uh, he's in tremendous shape. But, uh, you know, I, I was quite a bit bigger than he was, and I was certainly a lot taller. And, and I certainly uh, I emphasized that when I when we started doing this little march back and forth across the ring. <laughs> so uh, so almost everything we did in that match had a pop. And I don't know how many pops that crowd gave us. You know, the crowd was totally engrossed. They were buried in that match from the very beginning with everything we did pretty much. And, and we went. Uh, close to an hour. We went past 50 minutes, you know, and almost all of that was good, solid action. 
Uh, it was a classic type of world championship match. And it appeared the time limit was going to run out to fans. I think, you know, the announcer was announcing the five minutes. Uh, at 45 minutes, he announced 45. At 50, he announced 50. And then he was going to announce every five minutes from there on down to the end. So, uh, you know, everybody knew that we're getting close to the time limit. So everybody was expecting it was going to end up in a draw. But uh, just after the 50-minute mark, uh, I went got, got the fuller leg lock on him. I almost had it. And he grabbed the ropes. He was able to pull himself into the ropes. And before I got him, when I hooked that hold, I have to roll backwards. I roll forward on my head, and it carries his body backwards. But once he grabs the ropes, I can't pull him off the ropes. So the referee broke the hold. And uh, when the referee broke the hold, Terry hit me with one of the first punches of the entire match. Yeah, this is a crazy. We have a 50-minute wrestling match, to pretty much a wrestling match. But at this point, uh, I about got my hold. Uh, he blocks it by grabbing the ropes. The referee calls for a break. I give him a clean break, and he hits me with a low shot. And, boy, that building went nuts. They exploded like, oh, God, there it is. Here it comes, you know. And then he grabbed me by my right leg, and he started right into his spinning toe hole. And he spun around on my leg twice. And the third time that he was getting ready to spin, the referee was passing behind him because the referee wasn't in position where he could hear me give up if I gave up. So about the time the referee's passing behind him on that third spin, I kicked him right in the face. And it shot him backward, and he collided with the referee, and the referee went out of the ring on the concrete floor hard. You could tell he wasn't expecting it. And he went backwards straight out onto the hard concrete floor. Wow. So there was always a second referee watching a lot of these world championship matches in case something like this happened to happen, you know, so that the second referee could come down and continue the match. The match didn't have to stop, and he didn't have a fluky finish. So there was a second referee standing by that night. So Terry went down face first, you know, after I kicked him in the face and he collided with the referee. Then he went down face first and I crawled over the ropes where the referee had gotten knocked through. And I kind of drug myself up to a standing position. About the same time, Terry's getting up and he sees me hanging there. I just kind of put my arms over the top rope. Uh, because I had feeling his toe, yeah, his spinning toe hold. So I'm just kind of hanging on the ropes there. And he turns around, who runs across the ring opposite to where I am. And here he comes, man, charging across the ring at me. And he dives through the air with a big old forearm headed straight for my head. So I saw it coming and I just dropped down on my butt on the ring floor. And uh, he missed me. But when he did, he flew over the top rope out of the ring. And he almost landed on the referee that's laying out there on the ground. Yeah. And uh, he never touched me, you know. But uh, when I grabbed the ropes and started pulling myself up, I saw the referee roll over onto his back. So he sees what he sees is Terry come flying over the top rope right where I was standing. So the referee on the floor is still down and he's not moving. He saw Funk, like I said, come flying over the top rope. But he's still unable to get to his feet at this point. So the second referee, as soon as he saw the first one go out, he's headed down to the ring. So uh, as he arrives down at the ring, just about the time that Funk is crawling back into the ring, Funk crawls up on the apron. I'm waiting for him. At, at this point, I pretty much recovered from everything. And when Funk bent forward and he came through the ropes between the middle and, and the top rope, 
he was in perfect position for a jackknife. Some people call it the small package. Great move. One of it's a tremendous move if you if you if you can hook it good. And boy, I really did. I just caught him. His head was down. He was at the perfect angle, and I hooked him in a small package. Brought him right through the ropes, and the second referee was right there, and he counted him out and signaled for the bell. The building exploded. I mean, wow! I'd won the world championship. Now the second referee that is in the ring and it is counted out funk and he's rang the bell. He goes and gets the belt and he hands it to me. And I mean, man, I'm celebrating with the crowd. The ref that went out on the floor, he's crawling back in the ring about this time. And he starts waving off the wind basically. But me and the crowd are celebrating like crazy. I got the belt over my head and I could see this first referee that took the bump on the floor uh, pantomiming to the second one what had happened. And he was kind of doing his arms like I threw Funk over the top rope. So, you know, they were face-to-face arguing at this point. Yeah. I was holding the belt in my hand above my head, and, and there wasn't an ass in their seats in that building. Everybody was on their feet. So the head referee, the first referee, the one that went out on the floor, he could finally convince the second referee that I was disqualified for throwing Funk over the top rope. So I stood out the belt, and the crowd at that point considered me the new world champion. So the announcer had already announced me as soon as the, I was given the belt that I was the new world champion. But the two referees went over to talk to the announcer again. So suddenly the bell started ringing again. That was going to denote there was something wrong with the finish, obviously. And the announcer began announcing what had happened, and he changed the decision right there. So this automatically and obviously dramatically changed the attitude of this huge crowd. It went from a jubilant celebration to my having won to a potential riot. Wow. <laughs> they were like, yeah. they were angry about it, you know? Mm. So I'm still standing there. I still got the belt. I'm still holding the belt over my head, and Funk nails me from behind. I dropped the belt, and then he starts to slam me. And uh, when he did, I dropped down behind him. And by golly, this time I got the fuller leg lock. I put the roll in, and I had Terry Funk in the middle of the ring with my hold on him. Now, the match is already over, but the fans don't give a damn at this point. They're (laughs) like, wow, look at this. He's going to break his leg. So, you know, now the crowd's going wild, but it's in a different way. They had gone from being angry to being happy to being angry again. You know, at this point, they're happy as heck. I got him in the leg lock. You know, they're still unhappy with the fact that I'm not the world champion. But, uh, you know, they thought when I had him in this leg lock that this is it, by golly. It's celebration time, man. He's going to break Terry Funk's leg right here. So the way the whole work, it put both me and Terry Funk on our backs. And then our rear ends are basically touching. And I'm up there, our legs are kind of wrapped around each other, but I have a hold that's capable of breaking anybody's leg. My dad did a whole bunch of guys' legs just to prove that it could be done. Mm. It was a very vulnerable position for me. I couldn't move, but I had his right leg, and he wasn't going anywhere either. So it was pandemonium in the ring at this point. Now the two referees are trying to stop me from hurting the champion. It was also pandemonium in the building because the fans are – upset over the reversal of the world championship. And uh, now my opportunity to end Funk's run as world champion is all gone for them. 
The bell's ringing like crazy the whole time, and everybody is on their feet, and many of them are already starting to come to the ring. They're pissed. Holy cow. All of this is happening at once, all at one time, Ron. How did the how did the referees restore order after all this? Well, yes, it was all happening at once, but the referees weren't going to have to break my hold on funk. That was the whole deal. They were both just really, really desperate for me to let go. And as if there wasn't already enough happening, the biggest shock is still to come for everybody. The unthinkable is about to happen. Ronnie Garvin comes running from the back of the building to the ring. Uh He forced his way through the crowd and up onto the apron. Now, hundreds of fans had already surrounded the ring by this point. They were upset. Uh, They were happy. They, They were just... They didn't know what to do with themselves, you know. So uh, Ronnie had to push his way through these fans and get up on the apron. And uh, the fans were just extremely mad already. So Garvin climbed up to the top rope. Now I'm laying on my back. I've got Funk's ankle in in my hand. And and I'm cranking away on his leg. And I look up and I see Ronnie Garvin standing on the top rope above me. And... uh, I was absolutely helpless to defend myself. I'm laying on my back, uh, double hands full of Terry Funk's ankle, and Garvin leaped from that top rope. All I could do was watch it coming. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to roll over. I can't do anything. I'm locked in there in that position. And and at the height of his jump, it looked like to me he had to be 30 feet in the air. I'd never seen anybody jump like that. I mean, monkeys don't jump that high. It was just unbelievable. And he drove his knee into my throat so hard that the back of my head hit the mat so hard it knocked me out and knocked me unconscious. Holy cow. You've already seen Ronnie Garvin hit the lights in the TV studio. And so here uh, he's unencumbered as, as far as how high he jumps. But he jumps off the top rope into your throat after everything you've been through for the bounty. I mean, uh, w- what happened? Well, you know, I... I wasn't concerned about the bounty, uh, you know, but uh, he certainly did jump off the top rope in my throat, that's for sure. And uh, and I didn't care if he was going to get Funk's bounty money, uh, and certainly not at that point. I, in fact, I don't remember anything after that until my brother woke me up. He threw either some water or some Coke, some kind of liquid in my face. When I awoke, I don't know how long I was out. He told me later on it was minutes, several minutes. Uh, I was surrounded by medics in the ring. Uh, The Coliseum medical staff was the first ones to come to the ring, and they were trying to help me because an ambulance had already been called. But, you know, nobody was there. The ambulance hadn't arrived. And I'd been at that point out for several minutes. So there was still a roar in the building, or or at least in my head anyway. (laughs) I mean, it was still a noise there, and and Rob was telling me what was going on. He says, uh, Ron, nobody's left the building. And he says, We've had a riot. (laughs) It's been it's been crazy here, man, while you've been unconscious, you know, and but I couldn't see what was going on because I couldn't turn my head. Someone was holding my head uh, as steady as possible because he had jumped on my throat. It was my neck. uh, You know, I had and and I had obviously had an injury to my neck. And uh, so, you know, they were they were trying to do the protocol that you would if somebody had a battled a neck injury and you turn your head and you know that's you're going to have permanent damage there so the ambulance arrived at the back of the coliseum about that time and uh you know i I told rob i said tell me what's going on tell me what's happening so he described kind of what's happening 
And uh, one of the first things he said is, Rhonda, they're trying to get here. They've got a stretcher. They've got a stretcher back there. He goes, but but he says, there's so many people that have come from upstairs uh, to the downstairs. He goes, they can't get here. They can't yeah. get through the crowd to get to the ring, right? So it took the, the ambulance crew a while to make it to the ring. And uh, because the, the crowd had already rioted, there was chairs all over, I guess, the floor. And it was just crazy scene there. So thousands of fans had come downstairs, like I said, and I wasn't able to talk. I, I could barely say anything to Rob. And my throat was really hurting bad. Wow. You're at this point, you're laying on your back in the ring. Is Rob supporting your neck, holding your head still and, and trying to describe to you what's happening right there? Just kind of talking to each other close face to face. Yeah. He's, he's not actually holding my head. One of the, one of the, uh, people from the uh, medics from the Coliseum crew was holding my head, Yeah, but he's talking to me and he's standing right over me because, so he can look into my face so that we can see each other. Right. It was crazy, man. Uh, so, uh, I can only imagine how Funk and Garvin got back to the dressing room in one piece. I, I had no idea what I missed and, uh, the total thing that I missed until the following morning in the hospital, when I read the Knoxville sports section, and I'm going to read to you the actual account of that match from the newspaper the following day. And this is their version of the match and what happened afterward. And this reporter that wrote this had to be a fan or he had to be able to recall all of this pretty darn well. So here's what the Knoxville newspaper had to say the following day, October 11, 1976. Terry Funk of Amarillo, Texas, retained his world heavyweight title Sunday in a hotly disputed Southeastern Championship wrestling match at the Civic Coliseum. Challenger Ron Fuller of West Palm Beach, Florida, threw referee David Murphy and Terry Funk out of the ring. Funk came back in and was pinned by Fuller when referee Tommy Weathers counted Funk out and presented the belt to Fuller. The first referee, David Murphy, got back into the ring and reversed decision because Fuller threw Funk over the top rope. There ensued a 10-minute uproar in the Coliseum before the largest wrestling crowd in Knoxville's history. Some spectators threw chairs when Ronnie Garvin jumped off the top rope in Fuller's throat. Police removed several fans from the arena. Fuller was carried out of the Coliseum to a waiting ambulance on the back patio of the Coliseum. Holy cow. How accurate was that account, Ron? (laughs) It was pretty close. Pretty accurate, uh, you wow. know, especially for a newspaper, you know, like I said, uh, whoever wrote this article, he had it pretty close to right. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't throw either the referee or Funk out of the ring, but mm-hmm. the referee went out due to the, con- the collision with Funk. And I was carried out from the second level of the Coliseum. That actually happened because so many fans had come downstairs that the ambulance crew couldn't get through the crowd on the ground floor while trying to get me back into the ambulance. Yeah. So they finally made it into the ring, the actual ambulance crew. They put me on the the flatboard that they use for neck injuries and back injuries. Yeah. And uh, and they put the thing on my head that just, you know, holds your neck straight and it keeps you from moving it. Then they tried to take me back out to where the ambulance was. But there were so many people on the Coliseum floor at that point that they couldn't get me there. So what they did, they finally decided to get me out of the building on the second level of the Coliseum to get to the ambulance. And they took the ambulance that was parked on the floor level around the building to the far side 
and they're going to take me out of the second level. So fans got to coming down then when they saw me bringing, they were bringing me toward the stands. The fans up there started coming down the stairways Mm -hmm. because they all wanted to touch me. They all wanted to be close. It was pretty amazing. I couldn't see them, but I could tell it was a mob scene. So the fans blocked the stairs to the upper level. So the ambulance crew had to pass me from the four level up to the second level to get me through the crowd and out of the building. So it was a crazy scene. I mean, fans were surrounding me. Some of them were crying, and they were the fans were actually passing me up rows uh, to get to, to where it needed to be. The ambulance crew, uh, once they got me off of the basic floor, the bottom floor, and people got a hold of me, they just passed me on up, and then the ambulance crew had to work their way up and then get hold of the, the stretcher deal that I was on, and they carried me out. And when they carried me out, uh, Rob's still with me. He followed me through this whole process as well as he could. And when we got out there to the huge patio on the backside of the Coliseum, Rob said, Ron, there must be 3,000 people out here. He goes, I've never seen anything like this. And they put me in the ambulance. I'd never been in anything like that before or since in my entire career. The one thing that did happen there that day, I know for sure, Dave, is uh, I know a huge number of potential wrestling fans became permanent wrestling fans that day. No, no doubt. And, and I'm, it, it sounds like you were seriously hurt, but let's go back just for a second for folks who, who may have forgotten or didn't know, but you were accused of throwing Terry Funk over the top rope. And back then over the top rope was immediate, uh, disqualification, uh, disqualification. The, yeah. the match was over. I, I had kind of yeah. forgotten about that. So that's yeah. why they called everything. That's why they took the belt back from me because the first referee, he's laying on his back. He sees Funk come over the top rope where I was standing, and he just figures that I threw him over. But I never did. And that was Funk's momentum that actually threw himself over. Yeah, he threw himself over. Wow. He he catapulted himself over the top rope, and uh, it ended up being the thing that uh, cost me the world championship. So uh, it was crazy. I had forgotten about the over-the-top rope disqualification deal. That's, man, those are, those were the days. All right, so, but really, seriously, how bad were you hurt? Well, well, I knew something was wrong. Obviously, uh, on the front of my throat, I had tremendous pain, and I was having a hard time swallowing. I was having a real hard time talking. And uh, so once I get to the hospital, the x-rays kind of revealed that, that I definitely had, had a blow on the Adam's apple area just below my chin. Well, kind of where your Adam's apple sticks out, uh, you've got a couple of little uh, vertebrae there. It feels like little vertebrae, part of that area. Yeah. And and I was expecting they were going to find that out. But what they found out also was I had a hairline fracture of a vertebrae in my neck. Uh, now, I knew that I had that hairline fracture in my neck because it had happened to me in my second year of wrestling. I was aware of it. and uh, And I was off for quite a while in that year. And then I finally got better, and it it, it didn't bother me. I I could go on and wrestle with it, but I knew it was they were going to find that. So I tried to explain to them that you know this was an old injury. You know what you're looking at that hairline fracture. Oh, they didn't buy that. You know they're doctors, and they can't afford to buy that. They can't take my word for that. So uh, they stuck me. They admitted me. <laughs> they put me in the hospital, and probably I needed to be there. Quite honestly, you know I, my neck was really really hurting me bad it was it it was tough they did admit me to the hospital for sure how how long were you in the hospital i stayed there for three days 
and I was in traction for three days. And the problem was my neck got better where his knee had hit me in the throat. But, uh, you know, the thing that was really bothering me was that hairline fracture that they thought, and they put me in traction. Well, the blow from his knee, it wouldn't help in me being in traction. That mm. traction was pulling my neck, uh, and they put me in a, it was probably a 16, 18 pounds of weight on my neck, and uh, that was just killing me. And I'd, I'd wrestle for a few years without a huge amount of pain, and but this traction was going to screw up my neck. I could tell. I talked to the doctor every time he came in. I said, look, doc, the traction is hurting me. It's it's not good for me. So after three days, he, he just kept insisting. No, he he just kept putting that traction. He made sure I stayed in that traction all the time. And after three days, I just got up. I put my clothes on. I left the hospital. Wow. I never was released. I just went home. Wow. So, and I was hurt. I wasn't going to return to the ring for 47 days after this match. And until Thanksgiving night in 1976, I was going to come back. And it would be my first ever Southeastern match against Ronnie Garvin for the Southeastern Championship. I doubt anybody's ever heard anything like this. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there for an event like this. And this is a great spot for a break. Man, this has been exciting up to this point. We've got more coming up. Don't leave. The stud is coming back right after this. Super Studcast number 34 is going to transport us from stars of the past into the reality of today. This one is called COVID-19's Destruction of Wrestling. The stud takes a deep dive into today's COVID-19 pandemic and how it has tragically changed professional wrestling. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, he will touch on its effect on the big companies, but focus on the independents that actually perform in the smaller venues around the world. You'll hear the grisly facts from three people who are living it. An independent wrestler, promoter, and trainer bring home the devastating impact COVID-19 has had on the sport at that level. All Super Studcast are historical gems, but this one blows the top off of present-day wrestling just as COVID-19 has at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. Three eye-opening hours, hard to believe, of the most unusual look into present-day wrestling and can it survive you will not get this perspective anywhere else that's why they call them super studcast welcome back one of the most exciting studcasts i've ever listened to this has been a lot of fun you can find it all at tnstud.com that's tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast there you will find all of the studcasts i mean every one of them and all of the super studcasts as well t-shirts photos You'll find it all at tnstud.com. All right, so what's next, Ron? How do we how do we proceed from here? Because I know you're you're still putting the trimmings on the end of this match. Well, we've kind of finished with the match basically, but but I thought in today's training, you know, we're going to get a little bit back to our regular format. But I have something in mind for today's training that's going to kind of follow with this event in a way. We need to get back. I mean, I love these today's training uh, segments because uh, we, we, we're kind of educating fans about old school wrestling and about, about how it was all done. And uh, so uh, I want to kind of stick a little bit with this particular match and this particular day. So since we're ending up with this huge world title day, I have a great today's training idea. It, it has something to do with the world title day. And I think it's the biggest owner mistake I made on that day. 
I learned a lot from the entire day's events, obviously, and uh, spent some time in the hospital because of it. Uh, but one thing in particular that was maybe my only mistake as an owner uh, is kind of what I wanted to talk about today in today's training. So, so let's put on those owner hats out there, guys, uh, everybody listening, and find out what was the biggest mistake I made as an owner on October 10th, 1976. Obviously, the matches were great. Uh, we had a great card. Uh, finishes were great. The last one was too good almost, I guess you might say. But as an owner, uh, you know, there was one big thing I really missed. And I, I didn't properly plan for the biggest crowd in Knoxville history. You know, I, I expected it was going to be good. But I never expected the crowd to be the size that it was. The Coliseum seating had a great number of fans, obviously, as I described in the last studcast and the seating arrangement and a lot of permanent seats in the top part of the building. Most of the people sat up there and most of the people were up there in that second and third level of building. But those were all permanent seats and there's no way you're ever going to be able to expand the number of people that can sit up there, no matter how big the crowd is or how big you would like to, for it to be. Or you can't going to get more people than what can sit in those permanent seats. So they were also the least expensive seats in the building. So where do you think, Dave, that I, I maybe I didn't pay as much attention to the number of seats available as an owner should have? Um, I would say ringside, Ron. <laughs> it seems simple, don't it? Really simple, man. But I felt like such a fool, man, after all this had gone down. <laughs> and I could have, we could have put more people in the building than what we did. So you're exactly right about that. You know, I'm a genius. Mistake. Yes. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, so, yep, you're exactly right, my man. You know, and, and my first mistake as an owner was not having as many ringside seats as available as I could have. That was because I thought there was no way we were going to sell out that day. I just didn't expect it. And, and that was my first mistake. I learned right then that you never underestimate your gate. You never underestimate how big the crowd can be, especially when you can add seats. And the seats that I could have added would have been the most expensive for fans to buy. Right. It would have yeah. increased yeah. the gross dramatically as well as the house. So, uh, you know, as the number of attendants. So, so where do you think, Dave, on the first morning I felt good, good enough after I left the hospital, I went. Where did you go after you left the hospital? Yeah, after, after, your after I felt good enough to go somewhere in a couple of days at home, laying around and trying to get better. The first place that I went after recognizing and realizing what I had done, where do you think I went? You went to relive everything at the Coliseum. I went to the Coliseum, man. <laughs> you know, yeah, I wanted to go back, and I and I it just irked me. It just really bothered me the fact that that gosh, what what could I've done? How much more could I have done? And how many more people could I've set in that building if I had just expanded ringside? So, uh, you know, you're thinking like an owner now, Dave. That's exactly where I went to the Coliseum. I sat down with the manager of the Coliseum and his building setup crew. And we discussed how we could add ringside seats on the Coliseum floor and how many we could put. Uh, this would have been an unheard of discussion. Nobody would have thought about this prior to this night, uh, what happened on that day in this huge crowd. But, uh, you know. So first, we, we took a look at what the ringside capacity was on that day. You know, how many people were on ringside that day? We only had six rows of ringside. Uh, you know, on all four sides of the ring had six rows back. 
Each of those four sections had 240 seats in it, and all four of those sections combined was 960 total ringside seats, almost 1,000 ringside seats. That's quite a few ringside seats. It's not yeah. a bad setup, yeah. you know, but it's not what it could be. Did you guys have a barrier, any kind of a railing, anything around the ringside area? Never in those days. That's I mean, what I thought. Back in the, we're back in the 70s, you know. Right, and, right. You know, it wasn't like it, it turned out to be that we didn't even have ropes, the old ropes with but the you, steel stanchion. You probably had a little more room. I remember boxing matches. It seems like front row was literally, you could almost step down from the ring onto a chair, but you probably had a little more room than boxing matches around the ring because you guys were in and out of the ring. We were in a big building. We had a yeah. really big building. And, uh, you know, you didn't want to push everybody up to the ring. Yeah. And then it would look really tiny. It would look strange. So it was probably uh, a good 15 feet from the ring to the first row. Right, right. And we set them back quite a ways. And uh, that way you didn't have to worry about having a barricade because mm -hmm. fans are back and they're not as likely to get involved in the action themselves. Right. So, uh, you know, it... So the situation was totally different back in those days than what it is today. So the next part of my discussion with the manager and his, and his building crew is just how much we could increase the ringside without, without adding more rows to the ring. I didn't want to go past six rows deep. If you've ever sat in the sixth row of a sporting event, ringside or boxing, it's pretty hard to see over the five rows in front of you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I felt like now we've gone as far as we can and having six rows back. I don't want to go 10 rows back because then people got to stand up. And then when you start standing up in the seventh row, everybody behind that row has got to stand up to see over you. So, you know, I didn't want us to get into that situation. So I, I asked them, I said, what can we do, guys, other than add more rows to ringside? And their answer was like that. They said risers. I didn't know what risers were, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so they explained to me, you know, they're large platforms Ron, that, that are that you can build up to as high. Maybe uh, we could add another eight rows on these risers. And uh, because they're built up above the floor level, then you can see over the regular ringsiders that are in front of you, you know. So it was like, wow, you know, what a simple damn uh, way to do that. So those risers had the steps up and the steps up, and they were going to be upset. How many more ringsiders can we get than what we had for this event? And they said, we have on two sets of these risers, Ron. He says, we can put 400 people each on these two sets. And then he goes on the opposite sides of the building, where the building is, is not as long and as wide, we have two more sets of risers that we could put 200 each on. So by the time they got through talking to me about this and we sat down and figured out the numbers, we could have more than doubled the size of our ringside. Wow. We, with these risers, we could add another 1,200 ringside seats. Now that would have brought the total number of ringsides for that packed house from 960 to 2,200. So, you know... That's going to add about another $7,000 gross to the potential on a sellout if you sold all those risers. By the time we put the risers together, I asked the manager, I said, what position will we be in as to, to how big a crowd we can draw compared to everybody else? And he says, Ron, you will, with these risers, 
have the potential of uh, being the uh, the biggest event uh, in the Coliseum. You'll be able to put more people in this building than anybody else. Wow. The next question the manager asked me, he says, when do you want to implement this plan, Ron? So I told him well, the next Coliseum show, by golly, on Sunday, January 2nd, 1977, because Andre the Giant's on that card. Oh, yeah. So, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'm not going to say, well, uh, let's hold off a little bit. I said, hey, I want to do it. He said, well, how often you want to do it? I said, I want to do it every time we wrestle in this building. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I don't ever want to have to turn people away. Was again. it going to cost you more for the the crew to set up more, set up the risers, set up more seating? Zero. Nothing. Wow. Yeah. No extra for it. It's just, you know, you could ask for it, Ron, if you'd have known about it. And yeah. if you wanted it, we could have done it for you. Wouldn't it cost you? I felt like a dummy. There's you know? a big lesson so, learned. Yeah. So, yeah. What a lesson learned. That's for darn sure. So obviously we're going to implement the plan on January 2nd, uh, 1977, which was a couple of months away. There had never been a time, uh, just uh, bear this in mind, there'd really never been a time in the history of Knoxville that anyone before me ever dreamed of even filling the Coliseum like we'd done on October 10, 1976, you know? So much less adding another 1,200 fans to that total, you know? So so that, you know, and oddly enough, that time is going to come, and it's going to be only six months later that we're not only going to fill it like we did on October 10th, we're going to fill that 1,200 additional ringside, and we're going to turn away maybe as many people as gets into the building. And it's going to be for the next World Heavyweight Championship. That's going to be in April of 1977. That's awesome. I got to ask you, I want to go back just for a second. When Terry Funk comes to town, does he bring T-shirts? Does somebody set up a table? Does he have any sort of marketing that he sells while while the, 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 the fans are there? None. None. And, you know, uh, that's a great concept, you know, and it's a great question, too. Because uh, back in the 70s, you had your local wrestlers. They're there every week. They're going to set their tables up, and they're going to be selling their souvenirs. But you got to figure that Terry Funk, he's not been to Knoxville. He doesn't know anybody. Even if he wanted to sell stuff, he couldn't get it done. And then, you know, uh, and people don't like him either. Right. And they'd probably steal his money. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's all types of different reasons why he couldn't do it as a And he's just going to fly in there at five, three o'clock in the afternoon, and he's going to fly out at 10 o'clock the next morning. And he, how's he going to bring all that souvenirs with yeah. him? Uh, all of that. It just didn't happen for world champions. That happened at every event. We had wrestlers that were always up there selling their pictures and t shirts and all types of different items. But uh, that's a great question. It just didn't happen back That's in that time. Wow. It's hard to believe, Ron. I mean, and the growth of Southeastern was just absolutely remarkable in those days. And it seems like you were just beginning to open this can of how do we maximize seating in the, the best place that you could possibly put an event on in Knoxville. Right. And the biggest. Yeah. Not yeah. only the best, but the biggest building yeah. in the city. There's no place you can go that's bigger than this. So, and you're right about our growth. I mean, uh, the first week in January 1975, just uh, two months, basically, 12 weeks after I arrived there, first after and after Southeastern's first match, we had a crowd of less than 2,000 people in January 1975 in the first week of that year. 
In the first week of the next year, 1976, the crowd on that first Friday that we ran was 2,600. Now, when we get to this Andre the Giant afternoon on Sunday, January 2nd, 1977, the crowd is going to top 5,000. Wow. Yeah. So in just over two years, Southeastern wrestling uh, and the Knoxville crowds will have tripled in size, almost tripled in size in two years. That's incredible. Of course, Andre the Giant deserves a, a giant amount of credit on that, no doubt. Amazing numbers, Ron. All right, so let's move to getting a seat under the learning tree, get a cold beverage. And what was the question once again for this one? Okay, the question was, uh, since the Joe LaDuke and Mongolian stalker angle turned out so badly with an injury, did you ever work another angle that maybe went too far, like the LaDuke stalker angle did? And there's a second question to this one today, and that is, who gave me that question? <laughs> hate to ask that, but, you know, I didn't pick up the name. So. so if you're listening out there and you'd like to be acknowledged, all you need to do is just message me on any of my three Facebook sites, and, and we'll get you recognized. The next Studcast will have you in there and, uh, and give you credit for the question that we're going to be dealing with today. I'm looking forward to this one, too, Dave. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason I selected this question. Uh, you know, uh, the angle or the finish that maybe went too far is the one we just talked about today in this NWA World Championship match between Terry Funk and I. I mean, uh, you know, that's that's kind of why when I saw this question, I go, wow, this is perfect for this event here. So just like the blockbusting angle with LaDuke and Stomper, there was an injury in the finish of this match, too. And the angle in the world title match, I was the guy that got hurt. And oddly enough, this match comes almost a year before the Joe Duke mongolian stomper angle. So, you know, the guy could have said, why did you let this happen and then go through with the stomper and LaDuke deal? Well, you know, at this point, the stomper and LaDuke deal hadn't happened. So, so I've said many times that, you know, bookers can back themselves into a corner when they build like I did for this one match over a long period of time. And and then the booker doesn't take the time to come up with something great to happen in that match or on that card that's going to extend the program or it's going to add tremendous heat on somebody in his crew. That's extremely important for a booker. I mean, so great bookers take advantage of that huge crowd that they've spent the time to get in that building, something they've worked so hard on, and they take that opportunity to set their territory on fire with another angle that happens that day. That's really great booking. Average bookers, they fail to do something special that day, and then they can't follow that big match. So after the big match is over and nothing special happened that day that's going to want to bring fans back, their crowds are going to tend to drop off week after week afterward for a while. So it makes some bookers scared to even have the big event because they go, wow, I know we're going to have a big crowd, but what am I going to do afterward? Well, uh, that's your job as a booker. Figure out what the hell you're going to do afterward uh, before you do the big event. Right? Yeah, I bet that's where Ronnie Garvin comes in. There we go. Yep. There we go. <laughs> that, right, listen, that was genius, too, because yeah, they, I he, mean, had you're, just, you're he had really just come in today, new for, you're for it, you guys. <laughs> so, you know, for me as a booker, I mean, this world title match was that ideal opportunity to get that tremendous heat on a new heel yeah, that's yeah. going to become a star in Southeastern. He's going to be a star for years. And that heel was Ronnie Garvin. 
just exactly like you say, man. Yeah. So wow. I had no way of knowing just just like the Leduc and Stopper angle that anybody was going to get hurt, and it probably would not have happened. You know, if Garvin could have placed me when he got ready to jump off in my throat, you know, he'd done that same knee drop to me many times in the Florida Territory in 1970 and 71 when I was there just breaking in as a young guy. And they they married me to Ronnie Garvin, and he and I have wrestled each other three times a week for two years. And he was such a great worker. He taught me so much. But every time he did that jump off the top rope to me in 70 and 71, he always set me up for it. He picked me up when he was ready to do it, and he body slammed me or he suplexed me in the spot that he needed me to be in. So. That didn't happen in this title match because I put the fuller leg lock on Funk. And at the very end of that fuller leg lock, you got to roll. And when we rolled, it, we rolled in a, to an angle that was really, really difficult for Ronnie to be able to jump off and to land with his knee in my throat and not hurt me. Yeah. So, you know, he apologized many, many times afterward. Uh, about what happened, you know, but it wasn't his fault any more than it was my fault, you know. It just happened to be that the way things happened, that once we rolled, we ended up in a bad position for him. Yeah. You know, the strange things about wrestling is uh, dangerous moves sometimes in the sport of wrestling end up in injury. It ain't just sometimes, it's many times sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, a, it, it was what the sport was all about. It's just what wrestling was all about. And if you didn't take these chances to build your business and do something crazy like what happened that night and that afternoon, then you're never going to get your business off the ground. You ain't going to build your business. Your business will be just, if you're drawing that 2,000 like we were in 75, you were going to just stay at that 2,000. And I'd wanted to triple that to 6,000 to 7,000. I wanted to make it bigger and bigger. So... Terry's hand obviously got raised at the end of this match, and the belt got given back to him, obviously. And uh, Terry and Ronnie fought their way back to the dressing room after I was hurt and laying there in the ring. And our camera crew came back to the dressing room with them, and they recorded an interview with Terry and Garvin, all sweaty men and hyped up like crazy from having fought through the crowd to get back to the dressing room. Yeah. They shot an interview with them that's. That, Fantastic. Wow. We're going to talk about that interview on next week's Studcast because uh, it was just phenomenal. I mean, they were so pumped, and it was just a perfect time to catch somebody for an interview. And for the second time in Knoxville and in Southeastern history, I won the world title by count out. I had my hand raised, and I was given the belt, and then I had the decision reversed. It happened to me in 1975 with Jack Briscoe, and it happened to me in 1976 with Terry Funk. Wow. We just set an all-time record for Knoxville Wrestling on the Funk match, an all-time record to that point. It's not going to be an all-time record. It's just going to be one of the regular houses. But, uh, you know, at this point, it was an all-time record. Uh, but that record, like I said, is going to be shattered in six months when I wrestle Harley Race for the World Championship. And that's going to be my third match in southeastern Knoxville in three years against three different champions. So that in itself could well be another record. <laughs> I don't know any other wrestler that could say, I wrestled three years in a row, three different world champions. For real.
So as a closing note today, you know, I, I still have a knot on the left side of my throat. It's just below my chin. It's where Ronnie Garvin landed that day. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, Dave, w- when it gets cold and it's rainy, you know, that knot on my throat will start to ache. Wow. You know? And every time that happens, I put my hand up there and I can feel it. It's, it's, it's swollen. It's like bigger than the other side. And it makes me think back to October 10th, 1976, you know, 44 years now after, after one of the biggest days of my life. Wow. And it just has to flash in your mind, those moments, those incredible moments from that day. Well, absolutely. Another great one, Ron. There it is. A studcast is in the history books. And on Facebook, you can become friends with Ron on his two Facebook sites that are not full. Simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page or the author Ron Fuller Welch page to automatically become friends with a legend at Twitter. It's Ron Fuller Welch. You can keep up there as well. Super Studcast, the new Super Studcast number 34 is now available. It is very different than most. It is called COVID-19's Destruction of Wrestling. Ron, would you like to say a couple of things about this? I bet you would. Yeah, I really would. Uh, You know, I've done uh, all types of different studcasts. A lot of them are with the guys that I know. Uh, We talk Andre, Ron Wright, some guys that are are gone and not uh, not here anymore. Uh, Boy, we're going to jump forward here in this one. We're going to talk about a present-day subject, which I've never done on a Super Studcast. And what COVID-19 has done to wrestling is just unbelievable. And and we're going to have opportunity in this one to talk to wrestlers and promoters and trainers. And we're going to get a real idea. Fans are, I think fans are going to be fascinated by this one about just how bad it has become for those people that try to make a living in today's wrestling. It's just a really huge struggle. And uh, I can't wait to to hear what people think about this. uh, Part one is going to have a wrestler in it, it's going to have a promoter in it, and it's going to have a trainer in it. And a part two will have the same thing. So we're going to not just be talking about COVID's effect on wrestling. We're going to hear from those that's been affected. No doubt. 2020 has taken its toll. Don't forget Ron's extremely popular novel, Brutus. Find it on Amazon.com. Brutus Novel or get the book and autograph copy on tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. You'll find everything right there. Ron, I know you're doing something special every Sunday night now with Brutus. You're actually reading excerpts from the book. You're not reading the whole book, but I guess you're giving us just enough to make us want more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, it's kind of like the old wrestling theory and leave them wanting more, you know, I mean, uh, I've done three weeks of this, and if anybody that wants to join me, I'm going to do it on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock Eastern time. I'm going to do it on my Facebook site. I've got three sites, but I'm going to do it on the author, Ron Fuller Welch site. And uh, you can friend me there. Once you do that, uh, you can join me for this. I'm going to do it live. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's just been I've been getting a tremendous response from it. And, uh, you know, people are just blown away by this book. I mean, uh, I keep getting in, in that, that comparison to Jaws. and It's pretty difficult to put yourself in, in, the, in the realm of, of that book and that movie, for instance. And, uh, and then there's some talk about movie already, maybe. So 
that would just be unbelievable. But uh, but yeah, I invite everybody to join me on that's on Sunday night, seven o'clock Eastern time. It's on the Facebook uh, author Ron Fuller Welch site, and we'll we'll do uh, 20, 30 minutes uh, of reading an ep- excerpt from the book. And and it's awesome because everybody's giving this thing a five star rating. All right, so where are we headed next week, Ron? Oh, uh, we're going to have a new today's training, obviously, to continue that education of our fans. And uh, you know, we try to train. I'm I'm trying to train on everything about wrestling. And, uh, you know, a lot of it comes from the old school days and everybody says, I, I want to learn about it. I, how, how was it all done? I don't think you're going to find a better place to find out how it was all done than, than what's on every stud cast in the today's training. Uh, we're also going to be returning to Knoxville on, uh, October 22nd, 1976 after the big world title day. And my brother, Robert, who on that world title day, won that return match, that special match. Uh, that the winner of the match, even though they both lost, the loser leaves, the winner could return to Southeast, and the loser had to be gone as a wrestler. So Rob won that match, and he's coming back. Uh, Don Carson lost that match, and he's gone from Southeastern as a wrestler. (laughs) So, you know, and a lot of fans happy about that. So obviously now Rob is going to be trying to get some revenge on Ronnie Garvin. The main event for this match is going to be Rob against Ronnie Garvin. I've just been out of the hospital for two days when this match goes down. Tanaka's going to try to end Homer Odell's run in Southeastern. This time, it's a loser-leaves-Southeastern match between Homer Odell and Tor Tanaka. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of other great matches on that card as well. It's a big-time card. So we're going to find out what Terry Funk and Ronnie Garvin had to say next week on that dressing room interview. Uh, right after I'm injured and still laying in a ring about the time they're cutting the interview. So the learning tree question for next week is something different. The question is, how did talent traveling so much in the territory days find time to learn? Great question. Really, really good. I think that'll be interesting. And I want to thank Dave, uh, everybody out there for joining me today, obviously, and joining us today. And uh, please take care of yourselves out there and others around you, and may God bless us all. Hey, God bless you, too. Another amazing job, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.